Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Snap Out of It Radio Network. Hear all our great shows across the world. Join our community at snapoutofitradionetwork.com. So wake up, stand up, and snap out of it. Empowered Love with author, self-mastery coach, and relationship expert, Melanie Tanya Evans. Take back your power, heal your soul, and set yourself free. Free through Empowered Love. And now your host of Empowered Love, Melanie Tanya Evans. Hi everyone, I'm Mel and welcome to another Empowered Love radio show. Today's show is a question and answer show and in this show, which I do once a month, I answer certain questions that come through by email uh, by people that are wanting to know answers to the dichotomies of life, the stuff that we're needing to work out. And this show, I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, narcissistic abuse questions, which are some common questions, or one in particular that covers quite a wide range. And then I'm going to go into another couple of questions as well. So this one is, I think, very, very important. And it's in relation to, now, a lady, Sarah, sent me an email and I actually do hear this from a lot of people quite often and also too can be quite a topic of discussion on the Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Central page and also a lot of Narcissistic Abuse Forums. So this question is about the somatic, the cerebral and the inverted narcissists, what to look out for, what are the differences, how can we pick it and what's really going on with it. Now, Sam Batkin does a fair bit of information about this. I've also done a fair bit of research about this. I've definitely had a lot more experience with the somatic-type narcissist, which actually did cross over into cerebral as well. And I still want to define the differences in these narcissistic personality types, how you can pick them, but also be very, very aware that they can cross over and things don't have to be completely typical. So I'll explain a, bit, a little bit more about that as well. So anyway, we're going to start off with somatic narcissists. And this is really what most people would often define as the overt narcissist. Now, somatic narcissists are very obsessed with body. So looks is very, very important. So with a narcissist, any narcissist, what it is, it's a creation of a false self. And the false self has to have a self-idolization, a grandiose segmentation uh, of self in order to and survive emotionally. So with the somatic processes, their catch cry is, I'm in love with my body. So this is often the gin junkie. This is the type of person that's very, very obsessed with their looks. It's all about exercise, diet, vitamins. They can actually be incredible health freaks, somatic narcissists. Not always, but they can be. So with a somatic narcissist, what he's doing to get narcissistic supply and approval and attention is look at me, aren't I gorgeous? Now, of course, you can have females and males that are playing this out. So somatic narcissists, if we were to look at them without the term of narcissism, what they could look like to the outer world is with a male could be the sex addict. This is a man that 
He is often asked for sexual conquest. He may have primary relationships, but he's going to be adulterous if he's a somatic narcissist. So what he's always going to be doing is looking for approval, the thrill of the chase, sexual partners. So you're looking at high, high levels of promiscuity. And as we all know, or we should know, that it's often very insecure people, which narcissists are, they're highly, highly insecure at a true self level. They really have a lot of shame, they doubt themselves, they believe they're not good enough, and they cover it up with false self. That's how they escape emotional annihilation. So this false self is, the inner self is constantly looking for approval, and the false self is playing out sexual conquest in order to get that narcissistic supply. So if you're with a somatic narcissist, you are going to have somebody that's going to be obsessed with getting attention and it's going to be sexual attention. And also too, sex with a somatic narcissist feels like there's something missing. It feels like something's... You might have heard that in the background. That's actually my goats. It's just not over one of the bins. So I apologize for that. So this is a bit of on-site farm um, radio time we're doing here. They're looking at it and going, what have we just done? Okay, back to this. <laughs> oh, it's funny. We haven't got the chooks up here at the moment, otherwise you'd hear them as well. The people that saw my latest, latest newsletter and blog, you would have seen where I live and what I live in. And yeah, so I'm outside doing this out at my back uh, area doing this show at the moment. So back to somatic narcissists. If you're having sex with a somatic narcissist, it's not going to feel like lovemaking. It's going to feel like a bells and whistles and dynamics and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But So it's a highly sexually charged experience. But when you really, really dissect it, and it can be after that sexual experience where you're really there going, where was the intimacy? Where was the love? Where was the connection? It's feel quite disconnected because all narcissists, it doesn't matter which type of narcissist they are, struggle with intimacy because intimacy is all about vulnerability where they can be rejected or abandoned and they want to avoid that at all costs. And that's why narcissists actually get quite abusive once you've got close to them or if you've had an experience of closeness where they've been vulnerable to you to you, you will often find that after that will be an experience of abuse because of that fear of intimacy, they've got to push you away after getting close. So with a somatic narcissist, it's going to be about fetishes. So a somatic narcissist is going to be really inclined to wanting to watch pornos or doing dress-ups or that sort of thing. And they're going to objectify you. So... You know, and men can possibly tolerate this a bit more from women than what women can from men. The female somatic narcissist could actually almost be clinically diagnosed as histronic. She's going to fit into the histronic type personality. And if you have a look up histronic, you'll get to understand a bit more about that. But a male is possibly going to be more, uh, you know, unless he really, really dissects it and feels into it, he's going to be a bit more comfortable with a woman who's very overt sexually. She's into fetishes. She's into watching pornography together, dress-ups, you know, filming their sex acts, all those sorts of things. For a woman, she's going to really, and I'm not labeling men in any shape or form, and there are absolutely men that can feel actually eventually or sooner rather than later objectified by those experiences. But a lot of women... When they're with, with uh, somatic narcissists, 
you'll have an experience of feeling very objectified. So this man is likely to refer to your sexual parts as pet names and calling you by that name. And yeah, you'll feel more like an object than a human being to him. And that's how you can really understand a somatic narcissist. Now, we're going to go into cerebral and have a look at that. So the cerebral false self is, I'm in love with my brain. So this is not about flaunting my body for narcissistic supply. This is about flaunting my achievements, real or imagined, my accomplishments, real or imagined, my intellectual prowess, real or imagined. So this is how I maintain superiority and uh, I get people to adore me for my superiority. Now, for a cerebral narcissist in a relationship, they're going to be a lot less sexual than the somatic narcissist, who really is a sex addict. So the cerebral uh, narcissist may really withdraw from sexual acts, may prefer pornography and masturbation to real sex, may not be into having affairs and promiscuity, at all. Now it's interesting with a cerebral narcissist, if they suffer a big narcissistic injury, they can actually flip into being somatics for a certain amount of time. They can actually go out and act like a somatic and procure lots of sex to try and soothe and, and put salve on their damaged ego. And actually it's interesting because the somatic narcissist in a narcissistic injury might pull back in to be celebrant for a while, might actually withdraw and not have sex for a period of time. So they can swing between the two. Now with the cerebral narcissist, the cerebral narcissist really doesn't care about the body so much. So a cerebral narcissist may absolutely abuse the body, may not take care of it, may have very poor nutrition, may not be interested in vitamins, um, may uh, you know smoke and drink a lot, may really abuse the body and treat the body as an inconvenience and not really interested in how they drift, how they look, they could be quite sloppy and they could almost be like a little bit of an eccentric type of person who really doesn't care about how they look but is really book smart, brainy, all of that sort of thing. Now with the somatic narcissist, just going back to that for a sec, the somatic narcissist, even though they can be highly versed on body care and vitamins and exercise, can actually, in their promiscuity, be very, very loose and have very little regard for sexual protection. So somatic narcissists can actually uh, carry herpes, STDs, all sorts of things, not believe in condoms, um, and they can be really loose and reckless in their sexual ability because that's really where their addiction lies in many ways. Now, with both these narcissists, I have to really, really say, I found it very, very hard to um, consistently draw a distinction between the two. In my experience in my own life, in my experience with my clients' lives, I see a lot of crossovers and I see a lot of things that are not typical, typical. So for example, and this has been my personal experience as well, that I have been with somatic narcissists that are sex addicts that are definitely um, into the range of like uh, fetishes, promiscuity, that type of behavior. Now, one of them took good care of himself and the other one absolutely not at all. 
So even though, um, yeah, it used to flaunt the body, but didn't do exercise, didn't do health, didn't do nutrition, and was very, very sexually overt. So also, too, with both of those fantasies that uh, I was involved with, they and one was high level and the other one not so much, but with both of them, they were very, very cerebral in intellectual accomplishments, achievements, bragging, recognition was a huge, huge part of their makeup. So they absolutely did display both those types of things, definitely. Now, also too, you know, the somatic narcissist really typically is meant to be into, you know, real life sexual encounters, definitely one of these somatic narcissists was absolutely into that as well as pornography and masturbation to um, to relieve himself of the intimacy, to not have to be intimate. So I think it's very important that when you're talking about the different types of narcissists and what to look out for, I really do keep defaulting back to the point of that if you're in a relationship with a narcissist, regardless of whether they're somatic or whether they're cerebral, you really have no strategies to be able to make the relationship work. Your only strategies are to really, really identify that they are narcissistic and there's very, very clear cut points that points out that a person is narcissistic. And if you're sure, really refer back to, there was one of my blogs that I wrote about accountability, boundaries and accountability. You know, if you're not sure and you, well, first of all, this is win-win because you're definitely honoring yourself and you're creating very, very firm boundaries which say, well, either this can step up into being a respectful relationship or I am going to move on because I have to move on. Now, if this person is showing childhood wounds or they're lacking accountability and responsibility but they actually do have the inner resources to be a good person and they love you, they're going to move up into that space with you by you walking truth. Now, if they're narcissistic, they are not going to have the resources to be able to do it and you will find the gaps in the behavior are going to be very, very consistent. So that accountability, that remorse, that follow-through, the actions meet the words and then I'm going to take the actions to actually heal and be a healthy partner for you, that's not going to hold, it's not going to have consistency it's not going to have follow through and a lot of people have actually written to me um, and a lot of clients I've worked with that have come forth for healings after the article have actually said to me you know thank you that really defined it for me that this was actually less about uh, is this person a narcissist what type of narcissist are they had you know it's really about getting that focus off the narcissist which is all part of trauma bonding and actually, my next uh, blog that's coming out is all about trauma bonding and why we feel like it's like love and how we get reduced inside ourselves and we get significantly attached to the narcissist and we lose ourselves. And that's what feels like the bond. That's, and it's trauma bonding, but it feels like love. So we're going to be having a, a big look at that. So I really, I guess with today's show, what I really want to do is I do want to explain the differences, but I really want to point out that it is essential to come back to true self, come back to your boundaries, your truth, and get empowered enough to start walking it. Because regardless of whether somebody's somatic or cerebral 
or they're bits and pieces of both, you've got to honour you. And if they are those things, you're going to need to break through and create life with a healthy individual rather than a narcissist. So, but this is, if you're getting into a relationship or you're considering somebody, you know, one thing about narcissists that you're going to know is that they're going to be in love with an aspect of their false self. They're going to be in love with their achievements. They're going to be in love with their body or they're going to be in love with both. Now, that can be attractive, and with healthy people, it's attractive. Healthy narcissism is attractive, and healthy narcissism is, you know, I value myself, I believe in myself, I'm a confident person, but I've still got empathy, compassion, and I have consideration for other people in my world, and I want to create win-win solutions. Now, that's somebody that displays healthy narcissism, and most women and men we would like a significant partner. We would like somebody who's confident and believes in themselves and, you know, has great inner resources. Now, the narcissist has created this in a false self, so they actually don't have great inner resources. In fact, they don't even have any inner resources to be able to work through their own resolutions. So this is why they constantly have to get narcissistic supply from the outside world to try and soothe their inner tormented wounds. And that's the problem because they can appear to be confident, resourceful and compassionate, loving, helpful people in the early days. And that's before they've hooked you. And then when a narcissist has hooked you, well, then there's less and less of a compassionate, caring, bonding person and there's more and more of the narcissistic personality that comes out. And once they've created that trauma bonding with you, they don't need to play the act anymore. You know, they can be very, very much in the uh, Mr. Hyde personality. And so how do you know? How do you know? How you always know when you're starting a relationship is to take your time with the relationship. Really resist somebody that's trying to bond with you immediately, who's trying to tell you they're wearing their heart on their sleeve and this is it for them and, you know, this is the big deal and all the rest of it, what you really do need to do is take your time. I mean, and it would be lovely. It would be absolutely lovely if that could just work out that easily. And for some people, it does. But if you've had a history of childhood abuse or trauma or relationship difficulties or relationship pain or narcissistic abuse, you cannot take that risk. So this is about taking it slowly. This is about courting and dating somebody at a respectful pace and being able to have other interests and other things in your life without that person displaying jealousy or possessiveness or entitlement or starting to throw tantrums or using guilt and other tactics to try and secure your attention onto them. It's about not sexually bonding with somebody too quickly definitely, definitely taking your time. Now, you know, and if the person is too impatient for that, well, then they're either narcissistic or they're immature, you know, and either way, you're either looking at a narcissist or a codependent, and either way, that's going to enmesh with you, engulf your life and take you over, and it's just not healthy. So, so I hope, you know, the other narcissist I want to talk about is really a phenomenon. And, you know, some people talk about it and they go, well, am I one of them and how can I understand this? And, 
you know, and it's called inverted narcissism. Now, I haven't had a lot to do with inverted narcissists because it would be highly unlikely for inverted narcissists to actually turn up for any amount of therapy or help to get out of this situation. Highly, highly unlikely. So for when I describe inverted narcissists, for any of the ladies or the men that are listening to this show that suspect you might be an inverted narcissist, you would be highly unlikely to be working on personal development and looking for answers. To actually be much more inclined to live in the delusion of being with a narcissist and thinking you're happy. So inverted narcissism, a lot of people can see it as uh, masochism and I guess looks like that. But the reason an inverted narcissism has actually happened to a person is that they've been brought up by a narcissist and they had a bullying parent that completely engulfed and dominated their life. So what happened is this took away the child's needs, it took away the child's rights, and it made the parents' needs everything. Now this also can happen to codependents, it really can. But the defining feature here is that this child learned that the only way to gain approval or any sense of worth self-worth was to pander completely to the parent's false self, the egoic narcissistic personality. So what happens then is that this child was so engulfed with that and suffered shame on a huge inner level of believing I'm not lovable, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough. Narcissists have as well. Most children have at some level, which is why we're either codependent, narcissists or inverted narcissists. And what happened with the inverted narcissist was that they were so engulfed with this shame and lack of rights that they actually were not able to establish any defense mechanisms, which is really, really interesting. So it's complete compliance. So for a narcissist, narcissism is one of the ultimate defense mechanisms. And the ultimate defense mechanism of a narcissist is a person that develops narcissism or, or um, associate, becoming a sociopath or a psychopath is I will not be vulnerable. I will not be vulnerable because it hurts too much. It's me against the world. And that's the model of the sociopath, the narcissist and the psychopath. Okay, so the inverted narcissist didn't go to that defense mechanism. They weren't even allowed to develop it. They went into complete compliance. So... Now, a lot of people believe that inverted narcissism is damage beyond repair. So it is actually narcissism inverted. So what it means is that this person has got no ability or inner resources to trust a severely damaged inner self to be able to establish a true self, a true self that they can trust, believe in, back and live through. The narcissist is exactly the same. The narcissist does not trust their inner self. They know how damaged it is. And there's actually no resources left there to work with because they are so damaged. So a false self has to be created. So how the inverted narcissist survives is to go into complete compliance. And they can only actually feel whole, healthy or worthy in any, or any sense of self-identity by being with a narcissist, which is actually quite scary when we think about it. So what will happen with an inverted narcissist, and a codependent can go through this to, an ex to a, a level as well. So the inverted narcissist will, with a non-narcissistic person, will feel empty, will feel dead, will feel bored, will feel unfulfilled. Now, 
codependent women especially and some men could absolutely relate to this on some extent because as a codependent, if you've grown out up with a narcissistic entitled parent that took away self-rights, is that you actually may feel that it's boring to be with a nice person. And I know there'll be people listening to this that can identify with this. And this is part of growing up that we have to get past that and we have to heal that and we have to know that we're worthy of safe, healthy love rather than the roller coasters which go with narcissistic abuse or toxic relationships or even enmeshed codependent relationships that aren't healthy. So the inverted narcissist cannot stand the boredom and it, they feel dead on the inside if they're not with a narcissistic person. Now what can happen with an inverted narcissist is they might get with an individual that's a non-narcissist but what they'll have to do is they'll have to procure um, an affair, a friendship, a boss, something on the outside of them that is with a narcissist. And all of their attention and admiration will be actually directed at the narcissistic person outside of the relationship. So what will happen is that there'll be less and less and less attention on their relationship partner who's a non-narcissist. And ultimately, they may leave that person because they feel really unfulfilled in that relationship. So when an inverted narcissist gets with a narcissistic person, they're going to put a lot of attention and adoration and backing and compliance. And what they're really wanting to do unconsciously is making themselves completely indispensable to the narcissist. So that's their own form of narcissistic supply. The narcissist needs me, depends on me. And that's how they create the bonding with the narcissist. Now, by the very, very nature of narcissism, narcissists can get very, very bored with a compliant partner, extremely bored with them. So it's almost like the inverted narcissist knows that. So the inverted narcissist will actually even bring into the relationship other sources of narcissistic supply for the narcissist so that the relationship can supply. So this is the type of thing when we find out that there are partners out there that will um, encourage group sex, they'll go along with it, they'll actually um, allow their partners to hire prostitutes or have sex with other people. And when we hear about these sorts of things, it's quite common that this person may be an inverted narcissist or they're just so codependently broken that all their boundaries are smashed and they'll do anything to hang on. But that smacks of inverted narcissism when that sort of thing is going on. So, but as I said to you before, I know people can hear information about inverted narcissism and especially if you are really, really compliant to the narcissist because you're trying to minimal damage and you've lost your sense of self and you're just doing, doing, doing everything and everything and everything to uh, keep the relationship and minimalize the narcissistic rages and abuse you may be a codependent, not necessarily an inverted narcissist because if you're looking at self-help information, if you're trying to work it out, if you're trying to heal, if you're trying to get away, you are not an inverted narcissist. An inverted narcissist will defend the narcissist completely, will stave off all outside attempts to help them and get them clear of the relationship. They won't listen to any advice or help. And they've actually got an incredible ability to detach not react to the abuse, um, even feel comfortable with it, which is sort of really beyond, you know, as an ex 
codependent, it's really quite beyond my comprehension and I feel really, really sorry that people have got to that level um, where that can actually happen, but not judging it at all. It's just what can happen at, at a pathological level. So, so I hope that really helps explain for you. But as I said before, you know, I really believe that recovery from narcissistic abuse is definitely finding out about narcissists, different types of narcissists, how they tick. But then once you've done that, this is all about what is it within me that has co-created, brought into my experience this relationship, what wounds have I needed to heal, what unfinished childhood business have I got, where am I at, what do I need to heal within me. Because the wonderful thing is that when you really heal at an inner self-identity level, you have no attachment to wanting to be with narcissists. They don't attract you anymore. You're actually quite repelled by them. And you absolutely do never have to go through the trauma of living out narcissistic relationships again. And that's the gift of all of this because it brings you home to true self. That's your true focus. That's where you need to go. So, you know, one of the questions that I actually had um, that I wanted to bring up this week as well is that, you know, what is it about narcissists? Because people have heard that, you know, narcissists usually cling and they want narcissistic supply and they want to amiss you and they want to keep you and they, you know, can contact you six or 12 months later if they're low on supply and, you know, that's very, very true. Narcissists are insatiable creatures wanting attention and narcissistic supply and like any drug addict, they often have lots of drug dealers available, lots of sources set up where they can get their drug of choice, which is narcissistic supply. So there are a lot of narcissists that will not let you go. There are also narcissists that do devalue and discard. You know, and devalue and discard, even if a narcissist is keeping you on the hook, it's very, very obvious when they discredit you, push you away, threaten abandonment or do abandonment, then they come back, then they go out again, they do all sorts of things. You know, all narcissists play that out. It's that fear of intimacy, that fear of getting close where they could be vulnerable and abandoned. So they will sabotage and push away and push away and push away. But I think this was in reference to what happens when the narcissist takes off and keeps going and wants nothing to do with you. Now, what generally happens there, and I do believe this, is that narcissists, whether they're somatic or they're cerebral or whatever they are, narcissists know, they've got to know you very, very intimately and closely. They're very, very, very good at character assessment. So they've understood that abandonment to you, which is very consistent for a lot of women, is your biggest trigger. Now, what will happen is when you're hooked on that pain and that fear of that abandonment and what happens is so much trauma bonding with a narcissist is you actually regress back to infantile behavior. And this is primeval survival tactics. Like, for example, a child with an abusive mother will cling to that child to try and get soothing and try and get approval and try and get love and safety. And we get this sort of trauma bonding with the narcissist. So what happens is when they do devalue and discard is it hits your biggest buttons as abandonment and survival. So your natural tendency is to kind of regress back to that child to try and bond with the abusive parent that's abusing, abusing you, which is what the narcissist has become to you. So if you're actually chasing and trying to retain contact, even if you have the emotional charges of that abandonment and that pain and that discard, 
narcissistic abuse is a psychic phenomena and I believe this so much is that the narcissist knows that and feels that and gets a feed off that whether or not you're even in contact with them. So what will generally happen is one of two things. When you've been devalued, discarded, you're going to try and hook up. You're going to try and clean. You're going to try and get back into the narcissist's energy and attention and try and get that love, which narcissists sporadically can give you in abundance. That's the hugely confusing thing about them until you understand them is that they can turn from monster to angel. And you get more and more monster and less and less angel. And you're always chasing that. You're trying to get that, you know. So if you're if you're being discarded and devalued, and you're trying to get contact, and you're trying to get closure, and you're trying to get answers, and you're trying to get love, and you're trying to get approval, the narcissist is going to love hanging up on you. It's going to love blocking you on Facebook. It's going to love turning people against you, and cutting off all your ways of getting in contact with them. You know, because they know it drives you crazy. They know, and energetically, they feel it. They feed off it. So they're going to keep doing that because that gives them supply. It makes them feel omnipotent that they are so important that they can affect you on that type of level. So that's what's really going on here. So even if you don't contact and they keep moving on and you're stuck in that pain of how could I have been devalued and discarded and, you know, how can a narcissist turn around and say to me, oh, well, that's what you get for getting in a relationship with me, you know, because they're always playing poor me, victim, and, you know, yeah, if you knew how screwed up I was, you'd never come near me and they, you know, drop all sorts of red flags and it's just what they do. And they're going to, they're going to do that to you because they know how much it's affecting you. I've done so many healings with women that this is just incredible. And it actually doesn't even amaze me anymore when I get emails back after the healing. So when it's about doing that soul integration back to yourself, disconnecting the narcissist and coming home to your true self and your connection to source, where you're no longer in that infantile regression of neediness, when you sever all of that, it is phenomenal how many narcissists have picked up their mobile phones and text somebody or tried to ring them or leave a message because they actually feel the disconnection of narcissistic supply, of you needing them. It drops off and then they want to rehook it back up. And that can happen months or even years down the track with certain narcissists when people disconnect from them. So the answer to that is why are they doing that and why aren't they trying to keep the game going? They actually are keeping the game going by discarding you because they're getting an energy feed off it. And, you know, the narcissist, all he is worried about, he, she, is worried about is narcissistic supply and everybody is an object of narcissistic supply. So that's why that's going on. So that's the stuff about narcissism that I wanted to talk about today. And there was another question that I had from a girl called Karen and she's from Australia and she said, you started talking about things about inner level and inner identity, and she just wanted a little bit more of an explanation of that. And what she said, how can I understand that my inner identity may actually be the driver of me, but I'm not aware of what it is? So to answer that question, Karen, inner identity is an inner belief that we take on about ourselves. And often it's deeply unconscious, unless we really start thinking about it and feeling into it and giving us attention about what really is our inner identity. Lots of us 
until we do that, we don't really know who we are. How many people said, I don't know who I am anymore? And that can really be an indication of you're really being unconsciously driven, but you're not understanding what's unconsciously driving you anymore. Now, what happens is when we have experiences in life, and they start from a very, very early age, and for a lot of you, you know with me that, you know, I do have a big past life belief, and not everybody has to have that, and I certainly respect if you don't. And it really doesn't matter whether we look at uh, childhood beliefs that we take on or past life beliefs that we take on. I think I believe it's all the same thing. I believe that wherever we've left off is exactly what we attract and come into again, good or bad, because we're just creating more of us, always, always. And we're doing that consciously in our real life today as adults. We're doing it every second of our life. And we do it very unconsciously from a very, very young age, and I believe energetically we're eternally doing that. So really our job is to work out how we want to, we're always attracting more of us, so we want to attract more of us consciously rather than unconsciously if it's not working for us. So that's all about inner identity. And what happens as a child is that we all, as, as children, have a deep bonding connection to our outside world and we haven't consciously established what our identity is, we're really working off mirroring. We're working off approval from the outside, love. You know, do we have our wounds um, healed do, by the outside? Do we have them soothed by the outside? So do we have, you know, as a child, the simplest thing could be felt as a trauma or abandonment or a fear. And do we have a parent that actually holds us and kisses us and, you know, it's okay to feel that and then we feel the soothing and that's the mirroring that we receive. And if we receive healthy mirroring, then we establish the inner identity of being able to soothe and heal ourselves. If we haven't, we have to go in defense mechanisms. We actually split and we don't trust ourselves to soothe ourselves. And the only reason we don't trust ourselves to soothe ourselves or to create our life that we want to do is because we've got a defunct inner identity. So when we have a defunct inner identity, we've actually become the identity that matches the trauma of our outside. So rather than being able to detach with a healthy identity and say, I experienced abusive situations, our inner identity has actually become, I am an abused person. So, and again, from looking from the outside, we can't say, well, I had these experiences that actually, you know, threatened my self-worth. We come into, I have little self-worth. I'm not worthy. It was my fault. I'm unlovable. That's why I wasn't loved. So inner identity is very, very powerful. And there's been lots and lots of tests that have been done with great psychotherapists. There was a fantastic book that was actually written by a plastic surgeon about identity. And, you know, what he said was it was fascinating to him how that when people would have, have aesthetic changes on the outside, that sometimes it would be great, you know, and people would have a heightened sense of confidence and they'd be happier in the world. And then other times it didn't matter what aesthetically was done to a person, that their inner identity, if they still believed they were unlovable, that they were unattractive, they were unworthy, no amount of cosmetic surgery could make a scrap of difference to who they were on an inner level. 
And it's really, really interesting. People that have worked with abundance and law of attraction and all sorts of things, that some of them have discovered that no amount of affirming or confirming that they're going to make more money, that they're going to be more successful in the world, is actually going to change an inner identity if it's stuck in, I'm only worthy of making $500 a week. That is all they'll ever earn, no matter how much affirmation um, or mental cognitive work they will try to do to expand. But if they don't alter inner identity, inner identity will play out to the letter consistently. So inner identity is really about, and the way we track inner identity is through our emotions. That's actually the language of our soul. That's the language of our inner identity. So how we can really work out what our inner identity is, I love journaling and I think it's a great time to be intimate with ourselves to really connect to our inner identity and really check it out and find out what's going there. So if you want to think of your goal, of your goal of I want more financial prosperity in my life, I want a loving, successful, healthy relationship that lasts, etc., etc. If you actually write out your goal and then feel into it and what you want to take notice of is the fears, the doubts, the things that don't feel right about you flowing forward into your goal. Because the truth is, if your inner identity is aligned with your goal, you're going to flow forward naturally into outpouring into the creation of your goal. Your goal is you. If your inner identity is in opposition to your goal, then unless you actually do the healing and the changing at a transformational level on your inner identity, you are separated from your goal. Your inner identity can only ever manifest and create more of what it is. It's your driver. It's your driving force. So that's how you work out what's my inner identity. And I would like anybody that's listening, any area in your life that you're struggling with, write out your goal. And then what you want to do is you want to feel into the fears and the doubts that are between you and your goal. Because that's your inner identity saying, hang on a minute, I can't get there because this is what I believe about myself. And inner identity is always what you believe about yourself. It's very, very easy when we're not in contact with our inner identity to point our finger out at the outside world and say, well, this is my experience because of this thing out there. Whereas, in fact, it's your inner identity composition that's actually attracting, co-creating, participating and maintaining those situations in your life that are less than situations. So when you're feeling into your inner identity, you want to really be vulnerable and honest with yourself. And the great thing is initially, this is between you and you. You don't have to share it with anybody. It's great when you can with safe people because it really helps heal it and dissolve it and loosen it when we take full responsibility about our inner identity. But initially, this is about you and you. And it's not about being ashamed. Shame is the curse of humankind. Shame is what creates defunct inner, inner identities. Shame creates narcissism, codependency, inverted narcissism. It's all the shame that's crippled us. So this is about getting out of shame. This is about not judging yourself. Is it any wonder you've had a defunct inner identity? Have a look at what life has presented and where the consciousness of our planet's been. It hasn't been easy to have great inner identities. 
So feel into it and say, you know, I feel, and own it. If you feel unworthy of love, feel it, own it. You may even want to test yourself out with some of these questions to yourself. Do I feel unworthy? Be honest with yourself. Your emotions will tell you the truth. Do I believe I deserve real love? And and trace it back. When did I feel like this? How did I feel like this? Your inner self knows all the answers. And once you start getting the answers, you can start releasing some of those false beliefs that you've kept at an inner identity level that are actually holding you separate from your goals. And you can start recreating inner identity beliefs that are going to serve you and that are going to match your goals and are going to allow you to flow into your goals. So inner identity is where it's all going on. And if you want some more help with that, you know, it is about reading the right books, about getting into journaling processes, it's about working on yourself. It's about accessing energetic healing. And what you really want to do is look at deeper therapies that can get to your inner identity. Surface level cognitive therapies are not going to be enough to really, because if you think about it, your inner identity is like the super glue of the legs on a table. And if you want the table to move in a different direction, you you know, this table is super glued to the ground. It's not going to budge. And what you've got to do is dissolve that glue. So you've got to work at it at a deeper level. So if you want any more suggestions, I mean, all of my work's about that. You know, you can read a lot about that. I've got a video coming out about that shortly. But I hope that helps you understand more about an inner identity. So the last question that I've got today is, and I've had this question quite a bit, and I do respond to people personally on this, but I want to put it out there um, over Blog Talk Radio as well. Now, this is for people that are Christians that have actually come forward and said, you know, I don't believe in past life and reincarnation. Can I still do the narcissistic abuse recovery program and the MP3 healings in it? Because people that know about the program and know about quantum freedom healing, which I do, that, you know, there is a past life level component to that that is part of the loading up of the trauma at those levels to release them out of your body to get them clear of your system to transform that inner identity. You look, you most definitely can. And there are Christians that have done the program with a lot of success. There are Christians that I work with with quantum freedom healing because my healings are definitely non-denominational. Um, you know, being being a spiritualist and being an energy transformer, um, there's no judgment. There's no prerequisite. I'm just working with people's inner vibrations. So my recommendation to you is that when you're accessing past life level stuff, just use it as your past. Just, you know, focus on it about it's my past. It's anything in my past. Because that belief, one way or the other, doesn't need to come into it. Your body's going to do the work. It's going to do the clearing and bring you back to true self, which is a God source state. You know, it is all about God energy. It's about love. It's about enlightenment. It's about evolution. And it doesn't matter what denomination you are, these are all the same things to everybody. So that's my recommendation for people that want to access the program and get relief and have Christian beliefs. Um, you know, I respect your beliefs. Keep it up in mind to mind. But of course, you can use the program with any, within any belief context that works for you because it's still going to work. So that's it for the show today. So I hope that's helped. Uh, I'll be posting this show on Facebook and you can leave any comments or questions that you have about it. 
And of course, you can email me at any time at melanie at melanietonyevans.com if you've got any questions or you wanted to uh, make any comments about the show. And also to look out for the newsletter that's coming out through New Life, which is going to explain a lot about the trauma bonding with a narcissist, why it feels like love, what's really going on physiologically, spiritually, um, emotionally for you at that time, and I really hope that helps. So that's it for me today, everybody, and lots of love, and I'll be talking next week. Okay, bye-bye.